Um, this morning, we are continuing our series through the works of John, or the, the Institutes of John Calvin, his primary work. Um, and we're coming actually to the close here. We're getting close to the end of the Institutes. Um, the Lord's Supper is the last topic that I intend to um, cover with you all. Um, but Calvin says so much, and he says it um, it's such rich stuff that he writes. I'm going to take two weeks um, to cover what Calvin has to say about the Lord's Supper. It's interesting that Calvin puts the Lord's Supper very near the end of his book. In many ways, it, I think, is a kind of climax um, for um, what he's been arguing all the way through. Um, it ties together a lot of themes that he um, wants to talk about, especially uh, the theme of union with Jesus and how central that is um, to our salvation, how essential even and necessary it is for us to be delivered um, from our sins and resurrected on the last day. And we must, Calvin would say, be united to Jesus in order to experience any of these things. And the Lord's Supper is um, the sign and the seal of that union. So we're just going to jump right in and, and see if we can um, cover what we have for today. Book 4, Chapter 17. Calvin titles it this way, The Sacred Supper of Christ and What It Brings to Us. He says, God has received us once for all into his family to hold us not only as servants, but as sons. God has adopted us into his family. For Calvin, that was a, a central controlling idea of what it meant um, to be saved. Um, salvation was adoption into the family of God, not as servants, but as sons. Thereafter, to fulfill the duties of a most excellent father concerned for his offspring, he undertakes also to nourish us throughout the course of our life. Chris, do you mind pulling that door shut? That'd be great. Uh, what Calvin is saying here is that as a father, if God is a father to us, then what can we expect for a good father to do? A good father provides for his children. A good father provides for their nourishment and their strength day by day. And this indeed is what God um, does for us as our father. And not content with this alone, he has willed by giving his pledge to assure us of this continuing liberality. The Lord's Supper is a source of nourishment. It is also a continual source of uh, assurance of God's goodness, of his liberal nature, of his generosity that he gives to us. To this end, therefore, he has, that is God through the hand of his only begotten Son, given to his church another sacrament, another sacrament that is besides Baptism, that is a spiritual banquet, a spiritual banquet, wherein Christ attests himself to be the life-giving bread upon which our souls feed unto true and blessed immortality. I love that phrase that Calvin uses here, that description, a spiritual banquet. I think that's a really helpful term um, as we think about the Lord's Supper. It conveys two things. One, that the supper is a banquet. It is a real feeding, it is a real eating, it is a real feast, um, but that it is spiritual. And as you guys have heard me say many times, um, I think, um, when we hear that adjective spiritual, it doesn't just simply mean ephemeral or, or as though it is shadowy and non-physical. No, when we hear that word spiritual, what it means is that it is something that is accomplished by the work of the Spirit. It is done by the Spirit. So the Lord's Supper is a spiritual banquet in the sense that it is a real feast done through the person and power of the Holy Spirit. A spiritual banquet. I think that's a wonderful phrase to describe the Lord's Supper, especially if we understand that word spiritual uh, rightly. 
Um, Calvin says, uh, the knowledge of this high mystery is very necessary, that is, of the Lord's Supper, and in view of its very greatness demands a careful explanation. Furthermore, Satan, to deprive the church of this inestimable treasure, has long since spread clouds, and afterward to obscure this light has raised quarrels and conflicts to estrange the minds of simple folk from a taste for this sacred food. I think that's really interesting, actually, that Calvin says that. It, it, is, it is kind of fascinating to think about what is one of the things that Christians have argued over and had conflict over uh, more than almost anything else um, throughout its history. The Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, which is meant to be a feast for God's people, um, something that they welcome, um, has at various times been clouded by false doctrine. In Calvin's day, um, he saw this primarily in two ways. He saw, on the one hand, the, uh, the, the great abuses of the Roman church, not only in their doctrine of transubstantiation, which rendered the Lord's Supper to a carnal feast in his mind, but also, and especially for Calvin, the estrangement of the people from the table. Um, it was uh, normal at the time of the medieval church um, for people to commune only once a year, only once a year, and then often not even to be able to commune themselves, but to watch the priest commune on their behalf, that he was vicariously communing for them. Um, and so the people were, in effect, barred from this feast um, that, that, that had been given to them. And Calvin says this is something that Satan would love to do, to keep people from this sacrament that assures them of their being nourished by God, their union with Jesus, their a remind, constant reminder of God's goodness and love for them. And on the other hand, Calvin was also dealing with the issue in his day of uh, what he would describe as, as false teaching um, in terms of the idea that the supper was not a true feeding on Christ, but was mere, merely a recollection of God's goodness and of the death of Jesus for the behalf of sinners. Um, Calvin would say this in a different way is also abuse of the Lord's Supper because it does not have a high enough view of what the Lord intends to give us in this meal, um, that this is a true um, feeding upon Christ himself and his body and his blood by the power of the Spirit, and that this is something that we uh, depend upon, Calvin would say. And so it is wrong to confuse the teaching of it. It is wrong, um, even more than that, to keep the people from it to keep them from experiencing this as a central part of their spiritual life. Um, so Calvin um, there, I think, rightly charges um, demonic satanic influence in terms of confusing the church around this issue. I think that's a, probably a pretty insightful thing for him to say. So here's what Calvin wants to argue, really. He says, first, the signs are bread and wine, which represent for us the invisible food that we receive from the flesh and blood of Christ. Um, it's important for Calvin. Calvin's going to explain more what he means by that word signs. He doesn't just mean a bare symbol. He means something more than that. We'll see that. For as in baptism, God regenerating us and grafts us into the society of his church and makes us his own by adoption, so we have said that he discharges the function of a provident householder in continually supplying for us the food to sustain and preserve us in that life into which he has begotten us by his word. We come into the church through the sign and seal, the sacrament of baptism. We are engrafted into Christ. And then, in the Lord's Supper, God supplies for us the food that we need to be sustained and preserved in this life. And what is the food that we need? Christ, right? Christ is the food that we need. In some ways, Calvin's argument for the, the true meaning of the Lord's Supper is simply logical. How can we say that we 
that we can survive, that we can live, that we can continue in the spiritual life without the one who is food for our soul, without Christ himself. So therefore, in the supper, there must be a true feeding upon the one who is our life. Now Christ, Calvin says, is the only food of our soul, the only food. That word only is significant there, right? It's not just a source of nourishment, a particular way in which our souls are fed. No, it is the only food for our soul is Jesus Christ. And therefore, our Heavenly Father invites us to Christ. That is what He does in the Lord's Supper each week. He is inviting us to Christ Himself, that refreshed by partaking of Him, we may repeatedly gather strength until we shall have received heavenly immortality. The picture here is as if we're, we're um, just to choose a random image that appears in the Bible. In the wilderness, right? Heading for the promised land. And what do we need each day? We need bread from heaven to be sustained, to continue in the journey until we reach our final destination and goal, which is life fully in the presence of God. But what will keep us alive until we get there? It is Christ himself, the bread that came down from heaven, as he described himself in John 6. Since, however, this mystery of Christ's secret union with the devout is by nature incomprehensible, he shall show its figure and image in visible signs best adapted for our small capacity. Why bread and wine? Why bread and wine for this sacrament? Yes, the body and the blood of Christ but also because bread and wine signify for us what the sacrament does. When you eat bread, you're strengthened. When you drink wine, you are gladdened. These are natural things that happen when you eat and drink um, these things. And in the same way, the Lord, the Lord chose bread and wine to signify the feeding that we have in Christ, because as we feed on the body of Christ, we are strengthened. If we don't eat bread, what happens to us? We die, we starve, we die. When we drink wine, we're glad, and when we drink the blood of Christ, we are made glad and rejoice the good news of our salvation. Calvin says, indeed, by, da, 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 by giving guarantees and tokens, he makes it as certain for us as if we had seen it with our own eyes, right? For this very familiar comparison penetrates into even the dullest minds. Just as bread and wine sustain physical life, so are souls fed by Christ. We now understand the purpose of this mystical blessing, namely to confirm for us the fact that the Lord's body was once for all so sacrificed for us that we may now feed upon it. Jesus not only died, he also was raised from the dead. He went through death and was raised in glory and immortality. And one of the reasons he did this, not only to conquer death, was, was to give, be able to give himself continually to us as a source of life. And by feeding, feel ourselves the working of that unique sacrifice that his blood was once so shed for us in order to be our perpetual drink. One of the reasons that Jesus rose from the dead was so that he could give you his blood to be your perpetual drink. His life-giving blood, his life-giving body, that he might commune with you. And so to speak, the words of the promise added there, take this as my body, which is given for you. We are therefore bidden to take and eat the body which was once for all offered for our salvation, right? The self-same body that died on the cross was raised from the tomb on the third day. That body that was crucified is now risen and is what gives life to us today. 
in order that when we see ourselves made partakers of it, we may assuredly conclude that the power of his life-giving death will be efficacious for us. One of the things the Lord's Supper is meant to do is to assure us that Christ's death is for us. Hence, he also calls the cup the covenant in his blood. There was a making of a new covenant that was ratified then on the next day when Jesus was killed, when he was crucified for our sin. For he in some measure, that is Christ himself, renews or rather continues the covenant which he once for all ratified with his blood whenever he pro-offers that sacred blood for us to taste. This is something that we do each week. Um, we have it printed on our bulletins on the inside and the top that this is a covenant renewal service. When we gather on Sunday morning, it's not only so you can hear some interesting spiritual things and be encouraged in your faith. It is that you might have your covenant with God that Jesus has made with you in his own body and blood renewed formally, officially, corporately as the body of Christ that you may continue in that covenant because without it you are lost. Each time the Lord's Supper is taken at the end of our service is the climax in many ways of our worship. It is a renewal, a renewal of the covenant that Christ has made with us. He is the one that is renewing the covenant with us. We are the receptors. We are the, the passive participants in that um, exchange. Christ himself renews again his covenant with us by giving his body and blood for us to feast. Union with Christ. Calvin's all the way throughout um, his, his work, union with Christ has been perhaps the most predominant um, thread um, throughout his institutes. And of course here he's going to talk about union with Christ as well as a special fruit of the Lord's Supper. That's how Calvin titles this chapter. Union with Christ as the special fruit of the Lord's Supper. Godly souls can gather great assurance and delight from this sacrament in that they have a witness of our growth into one body with Christ, such as whatever is His may be called ours. I think this is a fascinating thing when you read Calvin. You see this pop up again and again. Calvin conceives of the union that we share with Jesus not simply as a once and for all declaration. It is that we are united to Him by faith when the Spirit works that in our hearts. And yet it is also something that we grow into. It is something that matures over time. It is something that deepens. I think that's a really fascinating thing to think about. It is not only a once and for all declaration and reality, it is also something that we grow into. We might say in the same way that in a marriage, right, on your wedding day you exchange vows with your, your spouse, your wife, or your husband, and you are at that point married. You are one flesh. It is declared. And yet what happens over the decades, if the Lord is gracious enough to give you decades and decades and decades? Does your one flesh reality increase? It does. It does, doesn't it? It grows over time. And Calvin would say the same thing happens with us. And one of the ways that we grow in our union with Christ, one of the most primary ways, not only by hearing his word preached, not only in praying um, through him to the Father by the power of the Spirit, but also by feeding upon him continually in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. This is one of the primary means, Calvin would say, of growing in that union with Christ that is given to us. Calvin says, we may dare assure ourselves of that eternal life of which Christ is the heir, is ours 
when we partake of him in the Lord's Supper. And that the kingdom of heaven into which he has already entered can no more be cut off from us than from him. Our union with Christ means that we can, the, the kingdom of heaven cannot be cut off from us any more than it can from the beloved Son of God. Indeed, that we cannot be condemned for our sins, for whose guilt he has absolved us, since he has willed to take them upon himself as if they were his own. This is the wonderful exchange which out of his measureless benevolence he has made with us, that becoming son of man with us, he has made us sons of God with him. That is the wonderful exchange, right? It is not only um, that our sins are imputed to him and his righteousness imputed to us. Yes, that is part of it. But part of the great exchange that happens through our union with Jesus is that as he takes on our humanity, we share in his divinity. That we are truly united to the life of God. That by his descent to earth, he has prepared an ascent to heaven for us. That by taking on our mortality, he has conferred his immortality upon us. That accepting our weakness, he has strengthened us by his power. That receiving our poverty unto himself, he has transferred his wealth to us. That taking the weight of our iniquity upon himself, he has clothed us with his righteousness. All that Jesus has is given to us through our union with him. It is not just some kind of shift in a bank account somewhere in the heavens. It is an actual, living, vital union by which all that he has is given to us because we are united to him. The spiritual presence of Christ in the sacrament. Again, that word spiritual means by the power of the Spirit. We should say the presence of Christ that takes place because and through the power of the Holy Spirit. In this sacrament, we have such full witness of all these things that we must certainly consider them as if Christ here present were himself set before our eyes and touched by our hands. I think that's a fascinating thing to think about. What Calvin is saying is that in the supper, when we take the bread, as we take the wine, it is no different than Christ himself being present to us and offering himself to us. That is the kind of assurance that it is meant to give us about our true feeding upon him. It would be no different if he were here. For this word cannot lie or deceive us. This is why, because Christ said it. Take, eat, drink. This is my body which is given for you. This is my blood which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. There Calvin, of course, is conflating the various accounts of institution. If Jesus said, this is my body, eat. If he said, this is my blood, drink. Then we can be sure that that is what is taking place. By bidding us take, he indicates that it is ours. By bidding us eat, that is made into one substance with us. By declaring that his body is given for us and his blood is shed for us, he teaches that both are not so much his as ours. For he took up and laid down both, not for his own advantage, but for our salvation. As we previously stated from the physical things set forth in the sacrament, we are led by a sort of analogy to spiritual things. Thus, when bread is given as a symbol of Christ's body, we must grasp this comparison. As bread nourishes, sustains, and keeps the life of our body, so Christ's body is the only food. Again, that word only is so important. It is not a food to invigorate our souls. It is the only food that will invigorate our souls. 
When we see wine set forth as a symbol of blood, we must reflect on the benefits which wine imparts to the body and so realize that these same are spiritually imparted to us by Christ's blood. These benefits are to nourish, refresh, strengthen, and gladden. I would especially emphasize that, um, that word gladden. I think that's so important as we think about the blood. The, the, the bread nourishes us. The body of Christ nourishes us. The wine, the blood of Christ, makes us glad. The Psalms tell us that wine was given to man to gladden his heart, right? To make him glad, to make him happy. In the same way, the blood of Christ is given to us to give us joy. For if we sufficiently consider what value we have received from the giving of that most holy blood and the body and the shedding of that blood, we must clearly perceive that these qualities of bread and wine are, according to such an analogy, excellently adapted to express those things which are communicated to us. They fit with what they do. How we are partakers by faith. For Calvin, this is so important. How does this happen? It happens as we partake of the sacrament by faith in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. It is not, of course, some sort of ontological um, exchange where the bread actually becomes the physical body of Christ and the, the wine becomes his actual physical blood. It happens, it is a mystery, a mystery that happens through faith by the power of the Spirit. That does not mean that it does not really happen. It does really happen. It does just as surely as when you eat bread and drink wine, that has really happened. But it happens by faith through the power of the Spirit. It remains for all this to be applied to us. That is done through the gospel, but more clearly through the sacred supper. I think that's interesting, that Calvin saw the supper as a uniquely suited place for us to exercise our faith in Christ and to experience the fruits of it. Because it is in the supper where he offers himself with all his benefits to us, and we receive him by faith. Christ beautifully expresses the whole matter in these words from John 6, The bread which I shall give you is my flesh, he said to the people, which I shall give for the life of the world. By these words, he doubtless means that his body will be to us as bread for the spiritual life of our souls, for it was made subject to death for our salvation. Moreover, that it is offered to us to eat when it makes us sharers in him by faith. Uh, once and for all, he gave his body to be made bread when he yielded himself to be crucified for the redemption of the world. Daily, he gives it when the word of the gospel is offered to us to partake inasmuch as he was crucified, when he seals such giving of himself by the sacred mystery of the supper, and when he inwardly fulfills what he outwardly designates. Every week, Calvin believes as we partake of the Lord's Supper, the promise that he made in John 6 comes true again and again and again by the power of the Spirit. His body is given for our, I'm sorry, his flesh is given for our bread, for our food. He gives himself for our life. There are some who define the eating of Christ's flesh and the drinking of his blood as in one word, nothing but to believe in Christ. Right? This is a view that was out there at the time. It's a view that's out there today that when we uh, eat Christ's flesh, when we drink his blood, it is just a sort of symbolic thing that we are doing to exercise our faith in him. Calvin says, but it seems to me that Christ meant to teach something more definite and more elevated in that noble discourse in which he commends to us the eating of his flesh. It is that we are quickened by the true partaking of him, not just that we are articulating our faith in him, 
by feeding on the sacrament, by, by taking the, the bread and the, the wine, but we're actually truly partaking of Christ. And he is thus designated this partaking by the words eating and drinking. That's why he called it eating and drinking, because he meant that we partake of him in order that no one should think that the life we receive from him is received by mere knowledge. This is such a crucial point to understand for Calvin. How could it be that the life we receive from Christ is given to us through mere knowledge of him? We must have a share in him. We must partake of him if we are to receive the life that he promises. It cannot, logically speaking, Calvin would say, be a mere intellectual exchange because that will not deliver us from our sins. That will not make us live forever. We need access to the source of true life. We need Christ himself. That's such a wonderful quote. No one should think that the life that we receive from Christ is received by mere knowledge. It's inclusive of knowledge, but it's far more than that. It's far more than something that is mental or intellectual. As it is not the seeing, but the eating of bread that suffices to feed the body. Right? Christ didn't just say, look upon my body right, and believe in me and you'll be made alive. He said, eat my flesh, feed upon me, drink my blood, partake of me. As it is not the seeing, but the eating of bread that suffices to feed the body, so the soul must truly and deeply become partaker of Christ. If our souls will live, they must partake of Christ. It is not sufficient for just mere knowledge to save us, that they may be quickened to spiritual life by His power. I'm going to go on. Yeah, go up to here. Okay, I love this, this section here. Um, in, in chapter 7 of, or section 7 of this chapter, um, Calvin just sort of in the middle of his argument just kind of takes a moment and says, you know, I'm saying all these things and I really believe them, but I'm, at the same time I want to acknowledge that this is really mysterious and um, difficult to fully talk about. It's, it's beyond us in some ways. So he has this little um, sort of aside. Um, He says, I'm not satisfied with those persons who, recognizing that we have some communion with Christ, when they would show what it is, make us partakers of the Spirit only, omitting mention of flesh and blood, right? There's some out there that mean that that when we take the Lord's Supper, we're made partakers of the Spirit, but not really the body and blood of Jesus. And Calvin says, that doesn't make any sense, because we need Jesus. As though all these things were to be said in vain, that his flesh is truly food, that his blood is truly drink, and that none have life except those who eat his flesh and drink his blood. If we, one may reduce to words so great a mystery, which I see that I do not even sufficiently comprehend with my mind. So Calvin says, it is not sufficient just to say that we partake of the Spirit in the meal. We partake also of Christ. But he then acknowledges, this is also a great mystery. And I cannot even sufficiently comprehend it to describe it fully. I freely admit, Calvin says, that no man should measure its sublimity by the little measure of my childishness. Rather, I urge my readers not to confine their mental interest within these two narrow limits, but to strive to ride much higher than I can lead them. For whenever this matter is discussed, when I have tried to say all, I feel as I have yet said little in proportion to its worth. For Calvin, the the mystery of the Lord's Supper was one of the deepest mysteries that there was in all of the Christian faith. 
And though my mind can think beyond what my tongue can utter, right? I can sort of think things in my mind that I can't fully articulate with my mouth. Yet even my mind is conquered and overwhelmed by the greatness of the thing, the greatness of this mystery. It is not a simple matter. Therefore, Calvin says, nothing remains but to break forth in wonder at this mystery. We should wonder. Every week we should wonder at the mystery of what we're doing when we partake of Christ and the body and blood, his body and blood and the bread and wine and the Lord's Supper. It is a wondrous mystery, which plainly neither the mind is able to conceive nor the tongue to express. And then he, he says, nevertheless, I shall in one way or other sum up my views. He said, despite the mystery, despite all these things, I'm going to keep on trying to describe them to you um, so they will be approved by you. Um, Calvin continues with this argument about the necessity of our partaking of Christ himself. Christ makes his abode in our flesh, he says. Uh, we're taught from the scriptures, Calvin says, that Christ was from the beginning that life-giving word of the Father, that he was the spring and source of life. Right? What does John 1 say? Without him, nothing was made that was made. He is the only source of life for all of creation and has been so since day one, since the beginning. All things received their life only in him. Therefore, John sometimes calls him the word of life, as he does in 1 John. Sometimes he even writes that in him was life, as he does in John 1, meaning that he that is Christ flowing even to all creatures instilled in them the power to breathe and live. The same John afterward adds that life was manifested only when having taken our flesh, the Son of God gave himself for our eyes to see and our hands to touch. For even though he had previously poured out his power upon the creature, still because man, estranged from God through sin and having lost participation in life, saw death threatening from every side, had to be received in the communion of the word in order to receive hope of immortality. What was the penalty of sin given in the garden? Death. Death. On the day that you eat of it, you shall die, right? And they did die. They didn't die yet physically, but they did die spiritually, we would say. They were cut off from communion with God, Adam and Eve, and all their descendants with them. And so if you are going to get back into that, you must go, Calvin would say, to the source of life. And who is the source of life? Christ, the Son, the second person of the Trinity. For how little assurance would you grasp if you heard that the Word of God contains itself the fullness of life, but in and around yourself nothing but death meets you and moves before your eyes? It's not much assurance to us that Jesus is the source of life unless we can partake of him, unless we can feed upon him. But when the source of life begins to abide in our flesh, dwell in us, he no longer lies hidden far from us, but shows that we are to partake of him. But he also quickens our very flesh in which he abides, that by his partaking of him, we may be fed unto immortality. I am, he says, the bread of life come down from heaven, and the bread which I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. By these words, he teaches not only that he is life, since he is the eternal word of God, who came down from heaven to us, but that by coming down, he poured that power upon the flesh which he took in order that from it participation and life might flow into us. And this is so important. Um, in the Incarnation, Christ was made a source of eternal life, not only 
um, in his, uh, his divinity, but also in his human nature and the way that those two things were united and connected together to one another. Um, this is so important to understand that in his body, in his blood, he became a source of life. Um, of course, we saw a wonderful image and picture of that um, several weeks ago in our sermon when the woman with the flow of blood knew that all she had to do really was touch Jesus. He was the source of life. It was not just his words or his, his, uh, uh, you know, his, his actions. It was actually just him himself. If she could partake of him, she would be made well. He becomes the source of life. From this also these things follows that his flesh is truly food and his, bod- his blood truly drink. If he is in his flesh and his blood of the source of life, we must partake of him. And by these foods, believers are nourished into eternal life. It is therefore a special comfort for the godly that they now find life in their own flesh. We are now made alive because of our union with Jesus. It is not far off. It is within us. Christ is in us. For thus they do not only reach it by an easy approach, but have it spontaneously presented and laid out before them. Let them but open the bosom of their heart to embrace its presence, and they will obtain it. Calvin uses this analogy. He says, we can explain the true nature of this by a familiar example. Water is sometimes drunk from a spring, sometimes drawn, sometimes led by channels to water the fields. Yet it does not flow forth from itself, but from the very source that supplies and serves it. In like manner, the flesh of Christ is like a rich and inexhaustible fountain that pours into us the life springing forth from the Godhead into itself. What Calvin is saying there is that um, Christ in his human nature, in his flesh and his blood, has entered into the life of God in his resurrection and ascension. He is hidden in God. And we feed upon him, we get access to that same life. We are made partakers of the divine nature, as Peter says. Second Timothy or Second Peter. Christ, the flesh of Christ, his humanity, is now like a rich and inexhaustible fountain that pours into us the life that springs forth from the Godhead into itself. Now, who does not see that communion of Christ's flesh and blood is necessary? It is not only a benefit, it is not only a great thing, a blessing, it is necessary, Calvin would say, for us who aspire to heavenly life. I'm going to stop there. I know there may be some questions. And we will, um, next week, Calvin will talk more in depth about um, how this happens, the work of the Spirit, um, the relationship between us and the ascended Christ, um, some things about practical things about the way that we take the supper and the frequency with which we should take the supper, those kinds of things. But really, I just wanted to emphasize this point again and again today because Calvin does it, that in the Lord's Supper, we truly commune on the body and blood of Jesus. And we must commune upon his flesh, upon his blood, because he is the source of all life. Any questions or comments about that or any of this that we've talked about today? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. 
Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. That is a great question. Um, certainly, we would we would say that the word and the sacrament are um, both necessary means of grace. Um, that we depend upon them both uh, continually. Um, yeah, but even by analogy, I think that we can see, um, you know, the 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 way that they they in, they relate to one another. In the in the word, the Lord speaks to us, right? And we need His voice. We're totally dependent upon it. We're lost without it. But in the supper, we feed upon Christ Himself, and I think that that speaks to that there is a particular um, form of intimacy um, that comes through the supper in a unique way. Um, again, that, that picture of marriage that we have, um, a husband and a wife build intimacy through speaking to one another, exchanging words, um, loving one another in that way. But they also exchange intimacy through the sexual relationship. And I think clearly in the, the, the context of the scriptures, um, the sexual relationship in marriage is a picture of what um, the Lord's Supper is for us. It is, it is that kind of renewal of covenant in the same way that, that physical um, intimacy between a husband and wife is a renewal of the marriage vow. And so, so that's, that's how I would think about and talk about it. I certainly don't want to, you know, diminish the word. Um, you know, we, but I think we do have a, a, a natural progression in the order of worship. Um, and I would say too, it's one that historically, as far as I know, basically has been the universal tradition of the church to word then sacrament after. <clears throat> yeah, Eric. You want to talk? Yeah. Yeah, the 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 sermon on the mount is given and then the yeah. Sure. Yeah. And after the law is given, Exodus 24, the elders go up and eat and drink in the presence of God um, after Exodus 20. Yeah, that's interesting. Yes, Todd. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I can speak to um, the, the entire history of the church. Todd's asking this idea of joy or gladness. Um, how, do, how has the church really worked that out in its life as it's taken of the, the sacrament? I think certainly I would say just generally, I think largely the church at times has not done that well and has um, uh, there is a solemnity at the Lord's Supper that is appropriate. It is a solemn meal. It is not the same thing as a birthday party or, a, um, you know, whatever. Um, but there should be joy. It should be, a, it's, a, it's a, a solemn kind of joy and gladness um, that should happen. And I think, I think at times the church has really struggled with that dynamic um, because, because, partly because of the connection between the death of Christ and the supper that is given for us, his blood is shed and his death. And so I think at times we've overemphasized a kind of introspective, um, um, somberness 
and I don't, I don't think that's appropriate. I think we should be, um, we should be glad, we should be happy. Um, it's, it's not a, not a, a light, joking kind of happiness necessarily, but it is a, it is something that goes even deeper than that. And I, I think it's a struggle even to just embody that well. It's something I think we're called to do. Yeah, and certainly part of the, what I, we're we're trying to do here. You know, we're we're trying not to. And the way that I try to invite folks to the table and assure you that this is a good thing that's given for you, not a scary thing that you should be afraid of, that's very deliberate on my part. Um, sometimes the Lord's Supper can be presented in that way in the Reformed tradition as more of a, a scary thing. Um, I don't think that's how it's presented for those who are in Christ. Um, it's a glad thing. It's a thing we should come to joyfully, hopefully. All right, one more, and then we'll close. Yes, Alexis. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and that's right. And that we should remember that that when we partake of Christ, we're not merely partaking of Him according to His human nature, but also according to His divine nature, which is as the eternally begotten Son of God, the one who called forth all things into life and creation. Um, and yeah, we should be conscious of that that we we commune with Christ. Um, not only in his humanity, but also in his divinity, uh, when we feed upon him. Yeah. All right, let's, uh, let's stand and pray. Father, we help. We pray you'd help us to continue to reflect on these things, on this great mystery, uh, that we would wonder at it even as Calvin does, that we'd be thankful for it. And Father, we look forward even in a little bit when we will gather again as your people, your bride, um, to uh, partake again of the life that you give us in the person of your Son. We pray that you would do this for us by the power of your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.